Welcome to the Revel and Reveal podcast. I'm your host, Deanna Enfield. Hello and welcome to the month of love. Um, We're in February and we're going to be talking everything about love. So love of self, love of life, love in relationships, what is love, why is love, um, you know, all the juicy details of love and all of its expression. And today we have on Jade Paris, who is a relationship coach. She founded the Bedrock Method, which is using three different components. So intimacy alignment. Um, a relationship operating system because she believes that when you are building a relationship it's like building a house or building a company like it's very intentional and then also relating cadence so that's about structuring intentional time connecting to your busy schedule really setting the stage for what this relationship is capable of because I mean if you think about starting a business you have a system in place and you're very intentional with your time and you have meetings every week to check in of the progress, what's happening, where is it going, all this stuff. And when you're in relationship, if you just kind of like go into it expecting nothing and seeing what'll happen, that's kind of all you're going to get is that wishy-washy feeling. And I am someone who does this often. So this interview was amazing in that I was deeply curious because I have no idea what I'm doing. I feel like I'm a third grader in relationship. Um, I've been single for a long time and, you know, I I love it, but (laughs) I feel like we all have something that we can learn. And Jade does an amazing job of explaining that, of explaining what is important in relationship and how to move into an intentional one. We talk about everything from the kink community to intimacy language Um, to attachment styles. It's really just packed with so many juicy details that I truly know nothing about. So I'm excited to learn from the best Jade Paris. Um, Without further ado, let's get into it. being on uh, we're gonna be talking a lot about love today amazing like that's your specialty <laughs> for sure um I know that you moved into more of relationship focus um but your background I mean when I started following it was really interesting with um orgasmic manifestation and really connecting with your feminine so I would love to start with that journey for you of like how you got into that and kind of where it transitioned into this relationship coaching for you. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I had a focus on orgasmic manifestation, um, and had created a course in it and was really, I was really excited about that because I had realized how much I had manifested in my own life using that. And then I started putting these pieces together from all these different sources on why it works and how, you know, when you are in an orgasmic state, your, your brain basically has access to your subconscious mind. And so if you're manifesting or you're, you're picturing your manifestations at the point of orgasm, um, you're going to have access to those in ways that you wouldn't just in normal waking life. And also the energy of our bodies is so big at that moment. So those two things paired together was really like um, just an incredible force. And so I was, I was, you know, kind of teaching that and helping people in that capacity. Um, And then I realized that I was acting as a relationship coach for so many people and that I was getting this feedback like over and over again, like, Hey, do you, have you ever thought about doing this, you know, as a profession? (laughs) And I was just like, no, what? No, you know, like I just, I just want to help people. And I really love to see people in love or work through things that they're struggling with and find each other again. And So then I started really going deep on why the things that I was kind of suggesting to people were working and exactly what 
my own process was because, you know, I, I developed a system out of that and it was just, it was a very interesting journey because I came to this realization that like, none of us are given the tools to have healthy relationships. Like nobody is taught how to be successful in this area of our lives, which is absolutely insane, right? Like where the modeling that we have is either from our parents, which I come from a family of divorce. I don't know, you know, what your history is like there, but like my, the modeling of relationship that my parents gave me was not great. And then the other place that we get it is media, which sets expectations unreasonably high and doesn't show, you know, all of the background kind of effort and work that it takes to, to really have a sustainable, healthy, happy relationship. Or we see modeling from our friends. And oftentimes when we're talking about our relationships to friends, it's about the stuff that we're struggling with, right? Like, at least this is how I was a lot um, in my 20s and early 30s. It was just like, if I had anything to say about a relationship that I was in, it was always bad. And then we also learn to connect on points where, you know, we're both experiencing the same thing in relationship. That's not great. And so, yeah, through all of that, I was like, okay, if we don't have the tools, what would it look like to create them? What do we need? What is the bare minimum that we need to have healthy, happy relationships? And, you know, how do we, how do I create those? How do I make sure that they're easy to understand? So it's not necessarily like something that somebody needs me to work through with them, you know, um, cause I'm also creating a course on the system that I, that I've created. And so, so yeah, I think that's how that shift happened. Um, and I mean, I still work with orgasmic manifestation. It just, it felt like there was this bigger calling where like, you know, there's so many people struggling in relationship. And so that, that seemed like something that I really wanted to focus on instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. With the kind of mirroring of relationships over the course of the years, has there been something that the media or parents have really shown you that is a myth that you kind of want to break down and reteach for people? Has there been something specific or is it more of a general of like, where is it coming from kind of situation for you? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think there's a lot of myths that that we're told about relationship that we, you know, are just sold and that we buy into, you know. Um, And one of those is that like relationships are just hard. Relationships just have to be hard and that's how it is. And, you know, that's what to expect. I think that is a myth. Um, You know, I think that... I think it's also kind of important to to point out that like relationships are going to look exactly how you structure them and and intentionally create them to look right so if if you just kind of show up and hope it works out that's kind of going to be the energy that you get back right? And, and in any other area of your life, would you do like, would you get hired for a brand new job and just be like, I I don't need training. I'm cool. I'm just going to show up and figure it out as I go along. And, you know, this is just how it's going to be. No one's going to tell me what they need from me or, or there's not going to be any expectations set. There's not gonna be any communication. Like there's no other area in our lives that we would do that. So I think that's also a, a, a myth of that, like, it either works or it doesn't, you know, and if it doesn't, then it's the other person's fault. <laughs> like, I think that's, that's also, you know, a perspective that kind of gets hammered into us. So yes, it's more about focusing on your own kind of desires and alignment, and then kind of creating the structure and vessel for it and you're kind Mm -hmm. of creating it with two different people or two or more people i guess um for sure 
with that, what are some indicators of a good relationship that you've kind of found? Um, I would say there's a few things. First of all, I would say like assuming positive intent, you know, always assuming that your partner has your best interests at heart, that they love you, that they want to be there with you and not assuming the worst is one of them. Um, open and vulnerable communication is also really important. You know, a lot of times people will say like, oh, you just got to communicate. You just, you just got to talk to each other. But I think we all carry around so much, you know, emotional weight from past relationships and things that if we haven't processed it within ourselves, it's really, it can be really difficult to reconcile that with the relationship that you're currently in. Right. And, and understanding that this person that you're dating is not the same person that hurt you 10 years ago. You know what I mean? Um, because I think a lot of times people can carry, carry things in their bodies and in their brains and these understandings of what relationship looks like that then can continue to damage future relationships, you know? Do you believe that well, I think a lot of people when they're like quote unquote healing, they yeah. tend to kind of distance themselves from mm -hmm. relationship and dating and just experiencing other people. Do you mm -hmm. think that that time away is a good thing or do you, are you of the mindset that you can still be healing while doing all of these things? Um, I think it depends. I think it really it depends on the person because some people in their healing journeys are going to become, I don't know how to say this in a better way, but they're going to become worse for a while, mm -hmm. right? Like when you, especially if you carry a lot of trauma, um, some of that stuff is helpful to work through on your own. Um, I don't think that that you should necessarily distance yourself from people because, you know, through connection with others, and it doesn't have to be a romantic connection, but through connection with others, that is a very healing, you know, thing. And so, so it just kind of depends on the person and also it depends on that person's attachment type. So if somebody is naturally avoidant and as they're healing, they are going to actually push their partner away, then, then yeah, it might be better to do some of that healing on your own or else you're going to end up hurting the person that you're with, you know, especially if you're unaware of it. Mm -hmm. If you're unaware of this pattern that you have where you hold people at arm's length or push them away if you're um, going through something. Um, and so, so yeah, I think, I think it can depend on the person because then there, there may be another person who in their healing is going to like really benefit from kind of a feedback loop. You know what I mean? Um, and that person might find more healing in a relationship. So it, it kind of, it kind of depends on the person I think. And I think we all really do find healing through relationship. So there's, there's just it's, it's almost like a spectrum right depends on where you're at in your healing journey and and I don't think I'm not of the mind at all that like some people just shouldn't be in relationship you know like that person is caring too much or they are dysregulated all the time I, I don't believe that those people you know should should be alone I just think that sometimes the self-awareness has to be a little bit higher in those situations. Yeah. yeah. One of the most helpful things for me was just seeing how all relationships are a mirror. And a mm. lot of times I would just push people away because I'm like, I don't want, I know it's not going to work. So I don't want to be with you. Oh, okay. <laughs> but even though the process of the relationship itself was still very helpful and kind of guided yeah. me. So I think there's always that balance of like, allowing yourself to experience it without so much weight on the outcome. Mm -hmm. um, 
You touched on attachment types a little bit, and I would love yeah. to talk more about those, um, yeah, just how sure. they've shown up for you over the years and kind of maybe a little description about each one in case someone doesn't know what they are. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so so the different attachment types, um, they they really speak to how a person shows up in a relationship and how they respond to intimacy. So there is three different types. There's a secure attachment type, and that person is usually pretty grounded regardless of what's going on around them. They are people who don't place their entire self-worth in other people's hands or like need someone else to validate them to feel safe in relationship. Um, and they're often people who grew up witnessing healthy relationships at home and felt safe at home and were, you know, had pretty regulated nervous systems growing up. Those kinds of things are going to help someone have a secure attachment type naturally. Um, and then there is an anxious attachment type, which, um, these are people who usually like relationship can be dysregulating for them because there's a feeling of anxiety around what's going to happen. Right. So relationship often will like consume their thoughts a lot and be something that can be very triggering for them, or they need a lot of reassurance because they're generally unsure of uh, how things are going. Um, these people usually need a lot more communication. Um, and again, yeah, reassurance of just like, Hey, we're safe. Everything's good. We might be in conflict right now, but that's okay. Um, Anxious attachment types also usually really struggle with attachment in a way or with conflict in a way that makes them want to pull closer. Um, and then the third type is avoidant. So, so oftentimes with people who have an avoidant attachment type, um, intimacy scares them a little bit. And instead of pulling closer, they push away just because it's um, their, their nervous system is also dysregulated, but instead of a need for reassurance and pulling closer and deeper connection, their responses push away and, and isolate and process on your own. Um, there is a fourth type as well called disorganized where you're kind of anxious and avoidant. Um, so sometimes they'll feel you know, nervous and, and have anxiety and feel dysregulated and want to pull closer. And sometimes they will want to push away. Um, and it kind of just depends on the situation that will point to their reaction in the moment. Mm -hmm. And with attachment styles and relationships, if someone, let's say they've been single for a long time and they're kind of mm -hmm. just taking the next steps in getting into relationship again, mm -hmm. what are some ways that they can kind of see where they're at? Um, I'm curious how, if friendships are show up the same way in relationships, mm -hmm. or if there's a good indicator for yourself of like, okay, well, what do I need in order to feel safe now? Um, I think a lot of people are kind of confused at how to identify their own systems of attachment. Um, yeah, for sure. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, I mean, reading the book Attached is, I would say, my first, my first, you know, um, piece of advice because it will really give you a deeper understanding of your own attachment type and also kind of where it comes from, where it stems from. Um, it will help you understand from a, from a different level because it makes you look at your upbringing a little bit um, and how your parents interacted with each other, how they interacted with you, if you felt supported in childhood, if you felt, you know, like you had people there that you could count on, things like that. Um, so yeah, that would be my first recommendation. Um because I really think self-knowledge is so, so important when getting into relationship. Um, and then I would also say, um, 
to kind of take stock of your relationship history, right? And this is also part of deeper self-knowledge because um, you should kind of like write down each relationship, the pros, the cons, where you felt supported, where you didn't, where things broke down and see if you can notice common themes and and habits that you've had in each relationship and how that has played out for you cyclically because i think we oftentimes are attracted to the same kind of people and those can sometimes be mirrors of our parents relationship as well because that oftentimes will just feel like home you know they always say sometimes like you know women are attracted to men like their fathers and Men are attracted to women like their mothers. And this is actually called your imago in therapy. Um, your opposite gender parent is your imago. Um, and so, so looking at that kind of stuff on a deeper level is going to help you understand like where you have maybe made choices that were not in your best interest in the past or where relationships fell apart in the past so that you can move forward into dating someone new without repeating those those same mistakes you know um and then i would also say that in terms of like moving forward with dating and trying to get into a relationship again like writing out a list of exactly what it is that you're looking for and not just from a physical perspective right like oh it's got to be over six feet tall and tall dark and handsome and you know brilliant and funny right um it's helpful to really write down your own values and what you want a home to feel like if you're somebody who likes to feel very rooted in one place, or if you're someone who wants to travel the world and, you know, like party all the time and, and live a really fast paced, exciting, glamorous life, or are you somebody who wants like family and kids and to stay in one place for 10 years? Because those kinds of things are going to determine whether or not two people are compatible. And, and I think compatibility is very often overlooked in a relationship. You know, like we meet somebody, we're like, you're hot. I am feeling all of these limerence chemicals in my body. I'm obsessed. Like we're going to just jump in and do this without actually like really having a like brass tacks conversation about whether or not your guys' lives are intertwinable, you know? So yeah, getting clear on those things for yourself is going to help you find the right person for you. Mm. And how do you know <laughs> if it's a deep value of yours on that list mm. versus that six foot kind of identifier? Sure, yeah. um, is there a way to kind of, I don't know what the word is, just move through all the muck of like, all the ideas of what you think you want in a person versus yeah. like what it is you actually want. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think attraction is important no matter what, right? Like, so if having someone who's over six feet tall is super important to you, that's a non-negotiable and that's okay. You know, it's, it's just, it's, it is what it is and it is who we are attracted to. And those kinds of things like, you know, they can change. And also, if this is your ideal, then that's your ideal. And that's totally fine. Um, and then in terms of the other pieces, you can have a list of non negotiables, and a list of, you know, things that are negotiable, things that you would like to have, but if they're not there, that's okay. You know, I think this also plays into the fact that we're often told that our partner is meant to fulfill every need that we have in our life. And that can be really damaging because that is a high bar to set for anybody, right? Like no one person can fulfill all of your emotional, mental, physical, spiritual needs all of the time. And so I think if as a society, 
we were more accepting of the fact that your partner is is there to be your partner and that you know you might connect on some of those things but they don't have to be everything and if you put that expectation on somebody it's setting them up for failure and it's setting yourself up for disappointment you know mm. Yeah, I often will have a list. <laughs> yeah. And then someone will come into my life and they'll like miss some of the things that I thought were non-negotiables. And then I just mm -hmm. sit with it. I'm like, am I settling or is this actually not important to me? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like a constant balance for me. Um, for sure. And sometimes those things do just shift, right? Sometimes when you're faced with the actual person in front of you who is incredible in their own way, it's like, oh, actually, maybe this thing I can have met by friends in my life. And this person gets to be incredible in a different way that I didn't expect. But wow, I love that so much, you know? Yeah. What is your take on like immediate sparks or love at first sight or any of those things? Do you think that's possible? Or do you think it's a slow burn kind of situation that you should be looking for? Hmm. This is a tough question because I think I do believe in really strong connection right off the bat, but I think that that really strong connection should be taken with just with a certain level of like concern or not concerned, but you know, like, like look at that, that, that spark as an invitation instead of a like bonfire moment, right? Because it's when you feel really intensely connected to somebody right off the bat when you know literally nothing about them, what you're doing is you're, you're kind of blinding yourself to who they actually are. And then sometimes when you have those like obsessive feelings about somebody, you know, and you want to spend every moment with them and you never stop talking to them on the phone or texting or, or whatever, and the rest of your life kind of falls by the wayside, what can sometimes happen is like neurochemically, those hormones at that level cannot last more than two or three months. Oh, so oftentimes what you'll see with relationships that start out that way is like, it's this obsessive, you know, beautiful, really intense connection for a few months. And then there's a steep drop off and you're suddenly wondering what happened? How do we get back to that place? Is there something wrong? What's the, what's the catch, you know, and it's, it can be difficult to, to move past and it can also be difficult to maintain a relationship for a long period of time with that person because you're there's just going to be a shift in energy there's going to be a difference in the beginning versus six months in and and so it can it can be kind of a mind fuck honestly where <laughs> you're like i I'm so in love with this person on the second date, like they're my soulmate, they're everything. And then four months in comes and you're just like, uh, am I in love with this person? I feel differently than I did. Is that a problem? Is, is something wrong? And, and what, what's really going on is that, that our bodies just can't sustain that. It's not realistic. And so, um, I do, I would suggest kind of trying to pump the brakes and slow things down and get to know a lot about each other. And, you know, like they also say that nobody can hide who they really are for more than three months. So sometimes, you know, we're on our best behavior when we start dating somebody. We are, we will do anything for them because we want to be picked and we, you know, are the very best versions of ourselves. And then if there's conflict and we're suddenly not this like, you know, manic pixie dream girl that <laughs> people have kind of like put you up on a pedestal of it's it a lot of relationships kind of come crashing down. 
and reality sets in and you realize that this person is not actually that compatible with you. And there's a lot of things about them that you overlooked because you were obsessed. And, you know, it's, it just can be a very, like, sobering realization sometimes. So yeah, I do always suggest a slow pace. Um, even when you feel really intensely about somebody, like, just give it some time, you know? <laughs> yeah. Do you usually work with people around that six month mark? Or is it more in the beginning? I mean, I usually work with people when they are many years in, and they've been married for a while. And you know, they're struggling to communicate. There's lots of conflict. There's just, um, I usually work with people when they're coming to a point of reckoning, right? And they're like, we need help. This isn't working. We're aware that it isn't working, but we don't know why. Help us, right? <laughs> like, that's usually when people are seeking out relationship coaching. Oftentimes, um, people who are still that early on in relationship will see seeking out relationship coaching as like the beginning of the end, or it's a problem or it just shouldn't work. It's just, I just shouldn't be with this person. So then a breakup usually happens. Um, I don't usually, I don't usually work with couples that early on in their, in their um, journey together. Hmm. Do you think it's beneficial to see a relationship coach when it is good? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely suggest that for people just kind of as maintenance, right? Like if you have a container to talk and to share your feelings and your thoughts and, and how you've been experiencing life, like I think if every couple had biweekly therapy or coaching sessions for their relationship, like the world would be a different place, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And with conflict, <laughs> mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of times we find it so we have so much pressure about bringing up conflict with relationships, yeah. especially anxious attachment style mm -hmm. people, because if we bring up a conflict then like that will always be the end or yeah. the idea of the end for us. Absolutely. Um, do you have any tips on starting that those kind of conflict resolution conversations for couples that like kind of avoid it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I really suggest a relationship check-in weekly hmm. for all of my clients. Um, it's a content, it's an intentional container to talk about how much you love each other, give feedback, what you're working on, how they can support you, you know, what you're feeling vulnerable about. Because if you have a weekly check-in, where, where there's a place to bring up, you know, any qualms that you may have, it, what it really does is, is, is it kind of circumvents resentment because a lot of times people will hold things in, like you said, especially if they have anxious attachment types, they'll hold things in until it's eating them alive or they blow up and, you know, start screaming at their partner and the partner's like, what are you talking about? Like, I've never heard this from you, right? And it's because they're waiting until the trigger is so big that it's impossible not to just let it out, right? But if you talk about that trigger when you've been sitting on it for four days instead of four months, I can guarantee you the really, the, the conversation is going to go differently for both people. It's going to feel a lot less scary to bring it up. It's going to feel a lot easier to hear it and to have a conversation about it and it's just it's going to kind of rewire your brain around conflict in general hmm. and with with relationships I've noticed that a lot of successful couples kind of have other successful couples around them yeah. <laughs> Do you suggest kind of finding mirroring couples where they are in similar situations or um i think one of the biggest issues for couples is that we tend to isolate and yeah. just kind of close off the world yeah, so yeah do you have any tips for that or like finding those kind of other couples um yeah you know i think 
And I, I mean, it's interesting that you brought it up from this perspective, because I think that when couples are really successful, and it's clear to the people around them, there are there are key components that like, make that an actual visible thing, right? Because like, otherwise, we're just behind closed doors and doing great, but nobody knows about it. Um, and I think like some of those things are like, they speak kindly about each other always, you know, they, they don't complain about their relationship to their friends, you know, just on a constant basis of like, oh, this thing's happening again and over and over and over again. Right. Because again, it's like, it's assuming positive intent and focusing on the good, right. That's a really key component to healthy relationships because no relationship is perfect nobody's going to be happy all the time. Nobody's going to be completely free of conflict. That's not realistic. It's how we deal with the conflict. It's how we act in the, in the moments of heightened, you know, nervous system dysregulation. Like those are the, the, the keys to having a healthy relationship that is able to withstand anything. You know what I mean? And so I think if you're looking for, other couples that are really healthy, you know, listen to the people who gush about their partner, right? Listen to the people who talk really highly of their partner and have great respect for them and, and a lot of love. And if you can't find people like that, like, then that means you have to be the impetus, right? You have to be the one to kind of start that form of communication with, with everybody else in your life, you know? Mm. That happened to me often. I found that a lot of my friends would always come to me to complain about the relationships like over and over. And when I was younger, it it was just that way of connecting with others. Like you're both in the struggle. So it made it feel really good. But then I would have to start setting those boundaries of like, I can't be the person that you come to because I, I need to like your person. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's a big deal, right? So how is that? If you start noticing yourself complaining a lot about your partner, Mm -hmm. is that signs that it might not be the right partner? Or is that more of a personal sign of like, just how you handle things and kind of shifting it that way. Yeah. Oof, I, I know how it, how it can be hard to be the space holder for a lot of people, you know, and, and I think the, the first question I would ask those people to try to kind of flip the script and, and initiate some kind of movement is have you brought this up with your partner? Right. Because a lot of times people will go to their friends to complain because they know that person's not going to fight back with them. It's not going to be actual conflict. They just need to get it out. And so they're like, oh, I can go to my best friend to talk about this. I'm not going to bring it up to my partner <laughs> because that would cause conflict or, you know, they might feel hurt or or whatever the situation is. But like the thing that they're complaining about can't change if there's no dialogue between them and their partner. So like as a space holder, you know, and as now a professional space holder and somebody who really helps people heal in relationship, that is always my first question, especially if I'm working with somebody one-on-one, I will say, you know, have you brought this up? How have you brought this up? You know, is it, do you usually bring it up when you're in a heightened state? Because when that happens, no matter what you're saying, it's going to be difficult to receive, right? Are you able to um, bring this conversation to the table in a way that's like super grounded and calm and, and get your, make sure your partner understands that you guys are on the same team, right? Like those are the kinds of questions that I would begin to ask friends who are just really going through it or really struggling because I think sometimes as space holders, we also assume that they're, they've had this conversation, right? And most of the time they haven't. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. 
yeah, it's just doing some deeper inquiry on like, oh, what does your communication look like around this? You know? Yeah. My assumption is when people come to me with it, it's like, you're done with the relationship. Yeah. <laughs> like you've oh, already sure. gotten to the point that you don't want to be there. Um, yeah. And then I realized for a while, I was just telling everyone to break up. And I was like, I don't know if this is healthy for me to <laughs> say. <laughs> I'm just getting jaded. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, when we become protective of our friends and, you know, when we hear somebody hurting over and over again, yeah, we're absolutely like, yeah, dump his ass, right? Like, because that seems like the easy answer. And it seems like how everyone's gonna feel better. But I think people can heal. There just has to be a lot of intentionality around it. Yeah. Do you have that? Do you know the phase where you're in the relationship and then you just kind of find like that one thing that they do that it's not a bad thing, but it just annoys the shit out of you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like how they eat yeah. or like how they do dishes or something just were very minor. Is that mm-hmm. one, is that normal? And two, is that a phase or is that something again that you have to bring up and work through? Right. Um, I think it's very normal, you know, especially, especially if you guys like both work from home and you're around each other all the time and, you know, that thing just kind of really gets to you. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because like, again, we have these, these like media portrayals of what relationships what good relationships look like and it's just sunshine and roses all the time and everybody is super hot and they're never gross and you know everyone smells like roses and it's like that's not the human condition right and I think sometimes the question also should be like how much am I willing to let this tiny thing ruin my day right because at the end of the day, it's a choice whether or not that thing is going to trigger you into a rage or you're going to laugh about it and be like, oh my God, I can't believe that this person, they do this thing. It's so ridiculous. I'm going to laugh about it. I'm going to move on with my day. (laughs) You know, like, I think that's also a thing is people get so attached to like fixing or making everything perfect and nothing's perfect. Nobody's perfect. Like, I think practicing the art of detachment and letting go of of an expectation of your partner to be a perfect you know beautiful marble statue all the time is just really unrealistic Mm -hmm. I don't realize I'm type a until someone starts trying to clean my house (laughs) oh sure yeah (laughs) I'm getting better Um, yeah well and then and then you know in that situation you know do you kind of say well if this person can't clean the house the way that I want it to be cleaned then I'm going to take on that role and they can take on a different role you know like structuring the the duties to to allow you to feel calm is going to work wonders for you or anybody who's type a you know yeah that's really helpful um with that with those things like acts of service, how do you feel about love languages? Do you agree with all of them or do you think it's more, I find it hard for myself because I'll like take the quiz, but I feel like I enjoy everything. (laughs) My love language is all of them. Yeah. (laughs) Do better. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I know you mentioned like the types of intimacy. Are those similar Mm -hmm. or how are they different? So love languages are usually inherent to who we are. And that is because that's the type of love we received from our parents. And so again, that's the modeling that we received. And when we go into a relationship ourselves, that is what we expect. So if, you know, one person is all words of affirmation and another person is all um, acts of service, there can be a disconnect there. And then some people will not feel loved by their partner and just assume that it can't work when I think that that's inherently false. You know, Um, I think that we can all learn to love each other in the ways that feel like love to us, you know, and it just requires communication. And it also, it also really requires asking for what you need, 
Um, and this kind of goes into the intimacy types. So there's there's actually nine different types of intimacy. They're not just, it's not just sexual intimacy. And I think sometimes when we hear intimacy, we just think, you know, it's just having sex. Um, but there's, you know, intellectual intimacy and verbal intimacy and physical and um, professional, financial. There's there's all these different ways in which we can connect with somebody spiritual, right? So the difference between love languages and intimacy types is that our intimacy types, while there may be some that are inherent to what we like and enjoy in relationships, they're constantly changing depending on what you're getting from day to day or week to week, right? And so that's another piece of this kind of like some soft discovery. And, and I, I walk my clients through um, a process called intimacy alignment, where they go through all the nine types of intimacy, they figure out which ones are most important to them, and also which cups are feeling the most empty, right? Because if you and your partner just went on like a big crazy trip and it was super fun, your level of, of experiential intimacy is going to be super full, but you might need more intellectual intimacy that next week. So you're feeling like deeply, you know, connected on an intellectual level. And so I have like cards for all of my clients to put out that, show exactly what intimacy types they're needing that week so that their partner knows and it's top of mind like oh my partner really needs like verbal and physical intimacy this week so I'm going to make an extra effort to make them feel loved in those ways and then I also teach people how to get those needs met by themselves and by other people in their lives so they're not just again putting all their intimacy needs on one person and then when you're spreading it out amongst you know, other people and also figuring out how to feel fulfilled in that way yourself, you're going to feel so much more fulfilled in life and in a relationship and, and not kind of point to your partner to like, fulfill every need that you have all the time, you know. Mm. With intimacy, that kind of feels like that orgasmic manifestation too, because like, yes, it is sex, but it, there's something so much deeper than to it. And I feel like it's mm. this deep intimacy with self. And um, I know you've mentioned before that like full body feeling. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Full body feeling in... with in um, When you're getting that physical intimacy with self and mm -hmm. kind of filling your own cups, mm -hmm you've talked about this feeling of being in the sensation and combining that with kind of your desires and what you're focusing on. Um, mm, okay. so I'm curious what that sensation is and like, if you can do that together. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure you can. Um, and yeah, when you, when you practice like orgasmic manifestation with a partner, holy moly, it's, it's really, it can become really intense because then you're cycling two people's energy through this manifestation and, and it expands and it grows. Um, and that's also, that's a part of sexual intimacy and also part of spiritual intimacy. Um, another important thing to know about yourself is like what your sexual blueprint is. Um, you can take this quiz online as well and figure out the ways in which your system is kind of turned on um, because there's there's different ways in which people connect sexually right and and you can probably feel this with with different partners right like I'm I'm an energetic um, sexual blueprint and also a shapeshifter and so for me like the energy that is happening during a sexual encounter is almost more important than anything else. And for some people, like, like some people might be very kinky and that is more important to them than anything else, because that's going to get them to that specific place. Right. And so, um, this is another thing that's great to like know about yourself because it'll help you not only, understand where there are like 
hits with their relationship or where there might be misfires. If, if you guys are two different um, sexual blueprint types, again, that's not like saying you shouldn't be together. It just gives you insight on how to connect and how to really speak each other's language basically in that space. Yeah. If I've never heard of sexual blueprint, so I'm going to do that. Yeah. Check it out. It's really cool. Um, with the sexual intimacy too, if it's not a make or break, is there a moment, like, let's say you have deep intimacy with someone like intellectually and you really care about them, but with sexual intimacy, it's difficult or it doesn't feel as strong there. Um, is that a make or break and, or a red flag? And if it's not, how would people kind of go about navigating that situation because I feel like that's a huge point of contention for relationships yeah it can be sometimes and you know there's there's a lot that goes into intimacy and attraction and sexual desire and um you know sometimes if there's a mismatch there just needs to be more time together you know Sometimes, sometimes when you meet somebody and you have sex with them for the first time, it's like this just clicks and we don't have to put in work to it. And it's just amazing. And, you know, that's, that's it. And sometimes you need to learn someone's body and you need to learn what their turn-ons are and, and how they, um, you know, get to like a plateau stage and, and arousal and things like that. And there's also there's another book that I would really suggest um, called come as you are. And it reframes sexuality from, from the perspective of like, we're, we're taught that libido is inherent and that you either have a high libido or you have a low libido. And that's not actually how the human body works. You just, you either have like a sensitive accelerator or you have sensitive brakes and sometimes, or you can, you can have both sometimes, but you know, they, they reframe it from a perspective of like accelerator and brakes because some people don't have a sensitive accelerator and they need a lot to really get into, into a place of high arousal. They need a lot to feel connected to their partner. They need a lot of time, a lot of foreplay, and some people are ready to go like that, right? And so it's it's just knowing what your partner needs and also things that might take them out of the experience. Like if you have very sensitive breaks, um, which is what they, they call it in this book, you kind of need things to be a very specific way. You need the lighting to be right. You need it to be a perfect temperature or else it's hard for you to feel connected to your body because you're you're out of it, right? So I think those kinds of things are really important to understand about yourself and about your partner so that you can come to an even playing field and understand exactly how to connect in a way that's going to be like explosive, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, how has this idea of a relationship shifted for you over the years? I know you mentioned like complaining about relationships in your early twenties and things. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you felt like the idea of what a relationship means to you has shifted and how has that looked? For sure. Um, Yeah. (laughs) My relationship history is varied and, you know, um, was really difficult, honestly. Um, And again, that's because I was really like repeating my parents relationship for a long time I was choosing people who were very bad for me because I thought I could fix them you know I I thought love was the only thing that mattered and nothing else mattered as long as you had crazy deep love for this person it didn't matter if they didn't treat you well because it was going to be fine um and none of that is true (laughs) you know I really (laughs) I really sometimes grieve for my younger self because I just think I was really operating out of fear a lot out of, you know, uh, just kind of a survival mechanism for most of my life. Um, 
And through those relationships, I learned a lot. I learned about myself, you know, in really deep ways. Um, and then the relationship that I was in before my current relationship, um, was actually polyamorous. And that was a masterclass in relating because it suddenly is everything is a negotiation, right? And you have to have the highest levels of communication and of understanding of your emotions. And you have to be able to communicate that to the other person in a way that's not like manipulative or damaging. And there's more than two people involved. So if you can imagine a regular relationship with just two people involved and all of the nuances that are present there, and then you add in another person, that that attention to to detail and attention to needs, it just expands exponentially, right? You you really have to be aware of what's happening with your partner, with their partner, with yourself with everybody's emotions who are involved. Um, and it, it really allowed me to step outside the paradigm that, you know, we're kind of sold about relationship. And it also was some of the hardest, you know, times of my life. It was really, really difficult. Um, and I know that a lot of people choose that lifestyle and they're happy and it's, it works for them. Um, I think I have too anxious of an attachment type for it to work for me. So, um, I'm grateful for that time because I, it learned, it taught me a lot and it taught me a lot about needs and what I need in relationship. Um, but I would also never choose it again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Is there, what are the differences between a polyamorous relationship and an ethical non-monogamous relationship? So ethical non-monogamy is just kind of an umbrella term. It can mean any kind of relating outside of the standard monogamous framework. Um, so ethical non-monogamy covers polyamory. It covers open relationships, swingers, you know, all of these different variations of ethical non-monogamy. Mm-hmm. Um, and polyamory usually includes romantic, like multiple romantic partners, open relationships are oftentimes just one romantic partner, but other sexual partners, there's just like, no feelings allowed for anybody else, which can be, you know, damaging. Um, It has to be done impeccably well, um, for it to not hurt the people in the relationship or the people outside. Um, and then swingers are kind of, you know, people who are monogamous, but might go to play parties together or, you know, things like that. So Hmm. do you have any clients that are in open relationships? And I mean, do you think it's doable or is it something that we kind of haven't figured out yet (laughs) as a society? (laughs) Yeah. You know, honestly, I think we're working through it. Um, I do have clients who are either already ethically non-monogamous or they're trying to make a shift from monogamous to ethically non-monogamous. I do think it's doable. I think that the level of self-awareness and um, emotional intelligence of all people involved has to be very high. Um, I think also like not taking things personally should be a part of, you know, the, the rhetoric of the relationship. Um, I have seen it work, but I've also in those relationships know that even though it's working there, there's a lot of pain there, you know, there's, there is still, um, struggle and there is still crunchy feelings. And, you know, I think, no matter how many years you've been poly or how many times you've tried ethical non-monogamy, there's just something in our human psyche that's going to feel a little sad when we're home alone and our partner is out on a date with their other partner, you know? It's just how we are. And you can feel compersion, which is kind of a, a poly term where you feel happiness for your partner's happiness. We can feel compersion 
and also still feel, you know, a little sad or a little alone or isolated. So mm-hmm. it's just, I don't think it's undoable. Um, I do think sometimes people who are attracted to polyamory are just really leaning into their avoidancy and trying it because it seems like the perfect solution to not get too deep with any one person, right? They can spread around the the connections and the fun and the intimacy without having to really face their own fears of going too deep with one person. So I think the cultural zeitgeist around it right now is shifting. And I do think that that with the right group of people is absolutely possible. I also think that polyamory can sometimes attract people who are not capable of holding that level of, you know, intense processing. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to revelrevealed.substack.com. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, Pricing starts at $5 a month. We have exclusive interviews on there, exclusive newsletters, um, access to certain artwork from me. Um, Yeah, it's a great time over there. I highly recommend it. And thank you so much to Jade for coming on and talking about relationships and all things about love. Um, You can check her out in the show notes below. Thank you for listening and I will see you next time.